The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. We're going to continue in our study of God's Word together. We continue, uh, we believe that teaching the Bible, studying it together is a form of worship. Worship is not isolated to one element on a Sunday or one element in the church service especially in light of Romans 12, that your whole life as a Christian is supposed to be an act of worship. We're supposed to be living sacrifices who please God in all that we do. And so we truly believe that it is biblical to say that we continue in our worship with the study of God's Word because that is just as much an act of worship as singing directly to the Lord through prayer or giving, the time of the offering, uh, and even interacting with the saints and encouraging them to love and good deeds Sunday school, teaching Sunday school, all of this is intended by God to be an act of worship from the heart. So that's just a tremendous privilege we have as sinners. Sinners can worship the true God, but only forgiven sinners. Uh, And sinners are only forgiven one way, and that's through Jesus Christ the Lord, and that's what Luke 15 is about. So go ahead and turn to Luke 15. In your bulletin, an outline is also provided. Similar to last week, we started chapter 15. Last week we did part one. For those of you who weren't with us, we laid the foundation last week. And we're going to cover a chunk of this today. Uh, The outline there on your bulletin The title I came up with, and you could come up with a lot of different titles because there's many that are appropriate. I just put the shepherd's heart uh, as a summary of the three stories that are told in chapter 15, three stories. Uh, People routinely say three parables. Technically, and I didn't say this last week, it's not three parables. Uh, It's one parable. I didn't say that last week. That might surprise you or confuse you. Verse 3, chapter 15 of Luke. So, Jesus told them this singular parable. And then he goes on to tell three stories. It's one parable. Um, it's not a big deal if, you know, the way it's been traditionally understood and taught. If you go to a commentary, <clears throat> Bible, New Testament survey commentary, typically they'll say these are three parables. I'm just taking the text. Literally at face value, verse 3 it says, So Jesus told them, that's the Pharisees, this singular parable. And then based on grammar and syntax, that backs up what I just said, because in verse 8, after he tells the first story, not the first parable, the first story, that is parabolic. uh, He said, my English translation says, or, what woman? Or, it's a Greek word, it's one letter. A, that's how it's pronounced in Greek. It's in the Greek text. Uh, it's a particle. That's a form of uh, grammar. It's a particle functioning as a conjunction, functioning as a connective or coordinating conjunction. Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, we need to give attention to it. So we believe in verbal inspiration of Scripture. Every word matters. That little conjunction is important and serves a purpose. The Holy Spirit was making sure that Luke put it in there for a reason. Uh, point being that story number one is directly connected and flows from and is, cannot be separated from story number two. Or And then when you get to verse 11, there's another coordinating conjunction, de, de, it's in the Greek text. And it's even more specific as a coordinating conjunction. Joining two things inseparably together, point being clearly in the Greek text, this whole chapter is one literary unit. This is not three parables. This is one parable. Because that's what verse 3 says. So he told them this parable. Them, who the Pharisees. Uh, And just to back up the fact that this is just, this is one. I'd say it's a threefold parable. It's like a telescope. Hand somebody a telescope that's folded up. Here, you can borrow my telescope. And then to use it, you, and it's got maybe three parts to it. And you have to pull it out and it extends it. Each of the three components 
complements and advances the other. That's exactly what this parable does. It's not three telescopes. It's a threefold telescope. That's what this is. This is a threefold parable. Uh, I say that because that's important to understanding uh, these three stories in this parable as a whole. Because you can't understand, you can't just take any one of these three stories, or historically three parables, uh, independent of themselves without uh, seeing all three together. Uh, the, the three stories complement one another. The first uh, two stories that we're going to look at today, they lay the groundwork and really the theological foundation of that most famous story, verses 11 to 32, known as the parable of the prodigal son. But you can't understand the parable or the story of the prodigal son, verses 11 through 32, without thoroughly understanding and taking into account the context of the first two stories, uh, verses 3 to 10, that people say are the, the other two parables. They're not just three similar parables, reiterating the same truth three times over. That's not is what's happening. It is true that there are themes that are repeated in each one of the three stories. Actually, there's four main themes repeated in all three, but the, each one is different. Uh, the second one advances the first. The third one uh, advances the first two in very significant ways. We'll see that next time when we deal with that uh, 11 through 32, the prodigal son story. Today we're just going to look at the first two, uh, verses 3 through 10. Uh, so just from a student of the Bible's point of view, you need to understand that. I'm trying, just trying to give you the big picture of how you approach Bible study and exegesis and exposition and then how you teach it and how you get the most out of understanding God's word. So... Uh, absolutely, you can't understand the prodigal son story without the groundwork of the first two stories. And historically, unfortunately, a lot of pastors uh, preach thematically and not expositionally. They don't do expository preaching, meaning, um, uh, I wonder what I'm going to preach on next week. Maybe I'll do John and pick a story there, and then the week after that, ah, I'll, fi- I'll figure it out later, but maybe one of the Gospels. Or maybe I'll go to the book of Numbers and do chapter 6 on the Nazarite vow, and maybe next week, whatever. Just pulling from here and there. And that's uh, what has been done through a large majority of church history, unfortunately. A lot of dominant preaching today is that. It's thematic preaching. It's not expositional. Um, But we believe expositional preaching is the only way you should be preaching because doing it expositionally is teaching the Bible in the context in which it was given so that we can properly understand it. It has to go in order. Luke wrote this book to Theophilus, chapter 1, verse 1, and he went in a specific order, and he didn't want Theophilus to deviate and say, oh, by the way, skip chapter 3 and 4, it's kind of boring, just go to chapter 5. No, it is all inextricably related. He's laying a foundation. There's a theme and themes that are developed throughout the whole thing, so you've got to understand each passage in its immediate context and the entire flowing context of the Gospel of Luke. That's how you need to read and study any book of the Bible, and you can't take shortcuts. You will do a disservice to yourself. You will circumvent God's intended meaning. Uh, You'll get a wholesale uh, vacuum of loss of information if you do that in this chapter. Because it is not uncommon for people, oh, the prodigal son, that's one of my favorite parables. And they go there, and literally you can find sermons written on the prodigal son verses 11 to 24 or 11 to 32, and they don't say anything about the first two stories that developed it. And I would just challenge you on your own that sometime, just read the story of the prodigal son, verses 11 to 32, without reading or noting or referencing the first two stories, and you will realize, oh, this just seems like a normal story on its own. It stands at face value on a story that could have happened in the days of Jesus, and yet, uh, the face value of it, it has no theological significance whatsoever that Jesus intended if you just read it by itself. As a matter of fact, if you just read the story of the prodigal son, apart from the first two stories that we're looking at today, Uh, you will miss the the main point Jesus was trying to make in the story of the prodigal son. And what was that? It was a rebuke to the Pharisees and the scribes. If you read the story of the prodigal son by itself, you will not pick up on that. Because it's not stated. So, very important. So what you've got, and then one more uh, thought about how they're all three inextricably related, and uh, the first two lay the foundation for the last famous story. Uh, is the spiritual themes and truths that Jesus wants us to take away cannot properly be understood unless we take all three together. And we'll point this out as we go. So I just thought that was an important thing. Not often considered or mentioned in uh, teaching and preaching and writing on these stories. I know that because just having reviewed it all, 
that wasn't really noted by very many people. Occasionally it was, so that's helpful to know. So let's go back. Now you can go to your uh, handout there in Luke chapter 15. I'm just going to read verses 1 through 10, and then we're going to go through all the way to verse 10, and then we'll pick up uh, the third story next time. Together, Jesus said, chapter 15, verse 1, Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Verse 8, Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one kind, coin does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds the coin. When she has found it, she calls together her lady friends and her lady neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. And in the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Just by way of reminder, what we learned uh, in our summary last week, we did on your handout there, we covered the first point. There's four points here on this idea, the shepherd's heart. And when I refer to shepherd, I'm talking about, first and foremost, God is the shepherd. He's, he's called a shepherd and described as a shepherd in the Old Testament. We saw that from Psalm 23 last week, as well as many other places. And then, of course, Jesus, the great shepherd of his people. So God is a shepherd. And then God has signed and gifted men in the church uh, with the spiritual gift of shepherding to, to be shepherds on a human level of believers. Shepherd's heart. And uh, the heart of human shepherds should reflect the heart of Jesus, who is the great loving good shepherd, which in Jesus' heart was just like God the Father. So uh, these are not exhaustive in terms of attributes of the heart of a shepherd, but they are the priorities. And that's Jesus' point. This is the heart of a true shepherd. He's saying this because Pharisees, scribes, scribes literally, in some of your translations, it's either scribe or it says teacher of the law. What does that mean? Teacher of the Bible, teacher of the Old Testament, teacher of God's word, teacher of scripture, teacher of divine truth, teacher of God's truth. That was their job. That's shepherding responsibility. The heart of a shepherd. So the scribes, the teachers of the law, were theoretically designated as a a form of a shepherd of the people, as were the Pharisees. The Pharisees, who were they? They were spiritual leaders in Israel of the day. There were hundreds of them, Pharisees. And they were the spiritual leaders. They ran the synagogues. They had spiritual authority. Actually, they had more than spiritual authority. They had political authority, and uh, at least in their, uh, with respect to Israel. Social authority. They ran the synagogues. They had authority over the people. They could intimidate the people. They controlled basically the masses through fear and intimidation, uh, manipulating the truth of God's word to do it. So they were highly revered, and so in a sense the Pharisees acted as though they were shepherds of the people, And as a result, uh, Jesus tells them of that great responsibility. If you claim to be a shepherd or an overseer of God's people, then you need to have a certain heart, you need to act a certain way, and you're you're accountable to God first and foremost for it. So if you want to be a shepherd, scribe, teacher of the law, if you want to be a shepherd, Pharisee, that represents God properly, then you better pay attention because you have to have the right heart. And Jesus tells these three stories that constitute one parable that does primarily one thing that's twofold, or really you could say two things. The point of these three stories, or this one parable, is a rebuke. It is a rebuke. Remember uh, the context that we talked about last week, where Jesus is uh, coming down from Galilee. He finished his ministry of two and a half years there. Now he's going, or three years, now he's going to the cross, and he's making his way, and he's going to all these towns and villages, many probably he's never been to before or didn't frequent 
uh, often as he's going down, crossing the Jordan River, going back, going through Perea, going down, heading to Jerusalem to the temple to arrive in God's providence on the week of the Passover so that he will be slaughtered as the Passover lamb. And along the way, he's got his disciples. He's got the women who love him and are following him. He's got the 70 that he's training. He's got uh, mobs of people that are just totally attracted to him, intrigued, uh, and they're following along. And he's accumulating people along the way because he's still doing miracles. He's still uh, teaching in a profound way uh, that's catching the attention of people. And he's got just a mass of enemies following him everywhere he goes, and they have been for three years, and that is the scribes and the Pharisees. They are everywhere. They won't relent. They're a pack of hyenas on each side and in front and behind him wherever he goes. They are relentless. They're on a mission. And that's to kill him and to shut him down and to shut him up and expose him and to shame him. And ultimately to kill him. And we're told that early on in his ministry, and that's what's going on here. And that's why this, these three stories, this parable, is, a, is an open rebuke to these Pharisees who have been opposing his ministry for three solid years. And so finally, I mean, and many times he said, uh, basically, quit opposing me. Uh, you're of Satan. You're resisting God. And he does that explicitly here through these three stories. So that's what it is. What is this parable? What are these three stories? It is a rebuke to the Pharisees. And the rebuke is, number one, you are opposing my ministry the Lord Jesus, you're proposing, uh, opposing who I am, my message, what I teach, and also my mission, why I came to earth. I came here because I was sent by Yahweh, who supposedly you represent, Pharisees, scribes. How ironic. I was sent by Yahweh. And you're opposing me. Therefore, the obvious, then you oppose Yahweh. You oppose the God that you claim to represent. So it's a rebuke to the Pharisees who are opposing Jesus' ministry. Why? Well, what is his ministry? What's the mission? It's real simple. God so loved the world. God the Father, Yahweh, God so loved the world. God so loved sinners. You could say that. God so loved sinners that he sent his only begotten son. That's the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah of the Old Testament. Sent him down here. He sent him through Mary, born of a virgin. Sent him to do a mission, sent him to teach, sent him to preach, and ultimately sent him, really, to die for sinners. God, so, God the Father so loved sinners that he sent Jesus, his Messiah, that he's known for all eternity before creation, down to this earth, so that Jesus might die on behalf of sinners and absorb the wrath of God. They might be forgiven of sin, adopted in the family of God, and live in sweet fellowship with the God, the creator of the universe, for eternity. That is the purpose of Jesus. That is his mission, to come to this earth and to live for, to teach, to die for, to rise for sinners, and to forgive them if they repent. That's his mission. It's real simple. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish under God's wrath, should not perish in eternal hell forever, but instead receive eternal life, receive uh, the blessing of living with God forever, totally forgiven in perfect harmony and unity with the God of the universe, and it begins in this life eternal life, a free gift. You can't earn it, can't work for it. None of us deserves it. It's a gift graciously given and bestowed by the merciful creator of the universe who's not just the creator, he is a savior. That's Jesus' mission. That's why he's here. He represents Yahweh and God perfectly, and yet they continue to resist him and resist him. And then the second part of that rebuke to these Pharisees is not only do you oppose me, really God's representative, God's Messiah, it just shows that you don't know God. You don't know Him. That's what they claim. We know God. Sinners don't. We know God. Gentiles don't. We know God. Prostitutes don't. We know God. Deformed people don't. They knew God by virtue of, at least from the Pharisees' point of view, by virtue of their birth, they were descendants of Abraham, so they're in. By ethnicity, the Pharisees, and because they're men. They had a low view of women, the Pharisees. Based on historical records, uh, it's pretty reliable that we know what Pharisees were doing in the days of Jesus. This isn't in the Bible, but it's, uh, the Jews have a lot of writings from that time period, and if you were a Pharisee of the elect and elite religious leadership of the day, uh, you got up proudly and just looked at the face of God, and you began to not just pray to God, but you also began to thank God. Thank God for how great you were. Thank you, Lord. God, that I am not a Gentile. God, thank you that I am not a woman. 
and they would say that several times a day. That was a Pharisee. That's how they prayed. We see a little bit of that in Luke 18, actually. So, what is the point of this chapter? The entire chapter, all 32 verses of chapter 15, it's real simple. It is a public rebuke of Jesus the Messiah, of the religious leadership of the day, namely the Pharisees and the scribes, to expose them, to shame them, to call God's wrath down on their head unless they repent from their wicked, evil, hard-hearted, unloving hearts as they misrepresent God. They're self-deceived. They actually don't know the true God at all. And everything they believe is the exact opposite of the truth of God. And they don't know God because they don't know one of his greatest attributes. And one of his, one of his greatest attributes is joy. And not only do they not really give credence to one of his greatest attributes, which is joy. It's not just wrath or holiness. But it's joy over a specific thing. And that's, this is the key. God has joy more than anything else over forgiving sinners. God has his greatest joy when he sees sinners repent. That's the point of this story. It's reiterated three times over with great points of emphasis, especially in the third story. God has great joy. God, Do you know how often God has joy? Unlike me and you. I could ask some of you right now, privately in the corner. So do you have any joy right now? Some of you might say, no, I don't actually. I'm having a bad day. I'm having a bad hour. I'm having a bad week. I'm having a bad month. I'm having a bad year. I lack joy. I don't Right now, Pastor Cliff, I don't have joy. But what do you have? I have sorrow. I have sadness. I have regret. I have guilt. I have depression. I have anxiety. I have fright. I have whatever. I have unbelief. That's true of our humanity, of our finiteness and our fallenness. So our, our joy is intermittent, and it's here and there, right? It's up and down, and sometimes it's this way and this way. That's not true of God. You know how often God has joy? God has joy all the time, nonstop. That is almost inconceivable. Take all of God's attributes together, every single one of them, and he has that attribute, exercises that attribute, feels that attribute, and in the Trinitarian relationships, experience all of those attributes, all in their fullness, all of the time. That is our God. How often does God have joy? All the time, nonstop, 24-7. That's mind-boggling. So God has joy all the time, and well, how long? How often does He have wrath all the time? Wow, how does that work? I have no idea. It's essential to His basic nature. God has love all the time. God has mercy all the time. God has justice all the time, or executes justice all the time. God has emotions. God is a person. We're made in His image. We are persons because God is first and foremost a person. And God has joy all the time, constantly, non-stop. That's an awesome thought to meditate on if you're down in the dumps. If you know this God and you know him personally through Jesus Christ, maybe you're bummed out and you're having a bad day and you're lacking joy, but your Father and Jesus now in heaven always has joy. And it's supernatural joy. It's a joy the world doesn't know. And, we're, and we see glimpses of it in this parable. Again, that's the point of emphasis. Jesus is trying to show the Pharisees, you don't know God. God is a God of joy, and the greatest thing God has joy over is not the fact that you were born of Abraham and you call yourself a Jew by virtue of your ethnicity and your blood, and that you keep the works of the law as a prideful, arrogant legalist. That is not what he has joy over. As a matter of fact, he despises that. He, he despises legalism, religious legalism, more than anything. We already saw that earlier in the book of Luke. What does Jesus despise the most and condemn the most, and what does God hate the most? It's not just... Uh, false religion and legalists, it's scriptural legalists. Those who take God's word and God's truth and twist it, manipulate it, and pervert it, and turn it into legalism. And they undermine God's grace and every intent about it. That made Jesus ang more angry than anything else. He, he would rather sit down with a ostracized, isolated, repeat adulteress of a prostitute at the dinner table, if she's willing to listen to Jesus, if she's willing to consider who he is and his message, if she's willing to repent, he'd be willing to sit down with her anytime over some hard-hearted religious legalist like the Pharisees who refuse to listen to him in their arrogance. They don't know God. They don't understand that God, one of his greatest attributes, is that he has joy, and one of his greatest joys is the forgiveness of of sinners. So let's go ahead and look at it. Starting, uh, we're going to pick up on the second point there. I'm going to give you all four points right now because they really go together. It's, 
can't do justice to a narrative passage with three stories like this through any kind of an outline. It's artificial and almost could be undermining the flow of Jesus' teaching here. So I'll just give them to you up front. Uh, last week we saw that verses 1 through 3 was emphasizing the true shepherd rebukes the self-righteous. He rebukes the self-righteous. The true shepherd does, and we talked about that. <coughs> Excuse me, spiritual error must be exposed uh, up front. Uh, number two, the true shepherd rescues sinners. And that's what happens in these three stories. Three times over. Number three, because the sinner is rescued, the true shepherd rejoices at repentance. And then number four, uh, the true shepherd reflects the heart of God. So let's look at those truths in light of these two stories leading up to the third story in the context of a public rebuke of religious legalistic hypocrites known as the Pharisees and the scribes. Just by way of reminder from last week, we didn't mention it much. Uh, we ended uh, chapter 14, verse 35. Jesus is speaking to thousands of people, calling them to discipleship by basically denying themselves and everything else in their life if they want to follow him. And it was quite a startling, convicting call. Many probably abandoned him that day. And then at the end, verse 25, 35, he gives an invitation. It's a different invitation than we give. He didn't say, uh, come forward or close your eyes and raise your hand. Very different. He just simply said, he who has an ear, let him hear. If you're interested at all in what I just said, this glaring rebuke that probably scared everybody, if you're actually still interested in what I just said, Listen carefully, be attentive, and actually come and see me and we'll talk further. That's what he meant. That's kind of an, it's an invitation. He who has an ear, let him hear what I just said. And immediately upon that, chapter 15, verse 1, now, or all of a sudden, or right then, that's, it's connected, all the tax collectors, we talked about this, all the pathetic, compromised traitors, Jews who were working for Rome, who were despised by the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who were irredeemable, they were the worst of the sinners, all of them in the crowd, all of them. could have been hundreds because the crowd was thousands. We don't know. No doubt dozens and dozens of them. So it was a lot, all of them. The whole network. You going forward? Yeah, well, I don't know. Are you going forward? Well, if he goes forward, I'll go forward. They all, they all went forward. Uh, so all the tax collectors came forward, took Jesus up on his plea, he who has an ear, let him hear. In other words, come talk to me, and then not only the tax collectors who were despised, but also these sinners, these sinners in the crowd, the sinners came forward, who knows was in that motley crew, but it's actually these sinners as defined by the Pharisees and the scribes, so it was a, an artificial, illegitimate definition of who was a sinner, and this word is used consistently through uh, the four Gospels as the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees looked down their nose on other people who are not worthy, and they were called the sinners, they're the irredeemables, they can't be saved, God doesn't like them, they are dirty, and they are first and foremost, they are Gentiles. They're not Jews. They're tax collectors. They're traitors. And then a whole other class of people, prostitutes and others who are compromised. That falls into the big category of the sinners, the sinners. So that phrase, the sinners came forward, that's from the perspective of the Pharisees and the scribes. Because that was the problem with the Pharisees and scribes. They were blind to the fact that they were sinners. They didn't think they were sinners. The Pharisee, you know what the word Pharisee means? Pure one. Pure, the pure one. That's what they thought of themselves. The pure ones. So we are the pure ones and then there's everybody else. The sinners. And that's how they refer to these irredeemable people throughout Jesus' ministry and in the four gospels. The sinners, the sinners, the sinners, the sinners. And then Jesus sits down and he, uh, he commiserates with sinners. He goes into the houses of sinners uh, he actually interacts and he has meals with sinners. A meal? What does that mean? Fellowship. Friendship. Not just tolerating sinners. That's like welcoming, embracing, and endorsing sinners. What is a fellowship? What's a meal? That's family. And the Pharisees, and they were aghast that Jesus was doing it. He's a rabbi and he, he has fellowship. He eats meals with these sinners. The sinners. So they see this, they're all coming to talk to Jesus, and Jesus doesn't turn them away, and so Jesus is probably receiving them, and we know he does, because verse 2 said, both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble 
uh, actually one translation says, mutter out loud. It could be heard. They're talking out loud, rumbling, criticizing Jesus, saying so that Jesus can hear this man, Jesus, receives sinners and eats with them. By the way, the word receives sinners, didn't talk about it last week. Uh, that's a very specific, rare Greek word, prosdekomai. It's got a preposition on the front of it. So just the word by itself means to receive without the preposition. To, to receive, welcome somebody. Be hospitable. And then Luke puts, a, under divine inspiration, a preposition on the front of it to accentuate it and make it emphatic all the more. Don't just receive them and welcome them. And fully embrace them as family. Be charitable to them, is one translation. That's what the word means. And so the Pharisees and the scribes were utterly disgusted at the, the sight of it. In their mind, Jesus is discredited by this thing, by him welcoming, embracing, hugging, kissing, loving, like family members. And he, and he eats with them. Like I said, that's the highest level of fellowship, is eating with somebody. So welcoming is like welcoming, embracing them like family, and then eating is taking it another step level. That's having sweet, intimate fellowship together. Because you can welcome family members into your house. You don't have to have a meal with them, Right? Some members of the family, maybe you don't want to have a meal because you don't want to sit there for two hours with that person. It's a family member, but you're going to welcome them because they're family. So the real personal intimacy is this idea of eating together. So we saw that last week, and Jesus is saying, oh, you know what, you've got the wrong attitude. You have a wrong view of God and a wrong view of, of humans and a wrong view of sinners. And so uh, that's point number one. The true shepherd rebukes the self-righteous, and he does with this parable. Now point number two, the, the true shepherd rescues Sinners, let's look at the first story. So he told them this parable, keeping in mind, who's the them? It is the Pharisees and the Sadducees in the audience who are muttering, criticizing him and his mission. Because in verse 7, when Jesus tells the parable, or the story, and he finishes, he says, I tell you. You know what he's doing? He's pointing his finger after he tells the story. Then he turns to the audience, points at the scribes and the Pharisees, and I tell you, getting their attention. Then he tells a second story. And then in verse 10, when he's done, he says, and in the same way, I tell you. So he's making it emphatically clear. Uh, he gets their attention. Hey, scribes and Pharisees, this story, these stories are for you. They apply to you. They're relevant to you. They represent you. And as a matter of fact, in my third story, you are in the story. The Pharisees are not in the first two stories. They make a cameo appearance, but in the third story, the Pharisees and the scribes are the main character in the story, pretty much. The main character, and they're, they're bad. And in the, after he tells the third story and goes at length, he doesn't need to point his finger, and, finger at them and say, oh, by the way, I tell you. You're in this, they know, because he's already said twice. I tell you, I tell you, and now I'm going to illustrate it. Very pointedly and specifically, now that I've laid the foundation of those first two stories, it's all about you. And it is not good. So let's look at the first story. Uh, what man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them? So right there, he's trying to draw them into his story. He personalizes it. Jesus was the master teacher. So simple, and yet his first phrase just draws them in. What, it's like a challenge. It's like, oh, oh yeah? Are you talking to me? What man among you? So he, he had their attention from the very beginning. What man among you? Every one of you scribes and Pharisees, they were all men. What man among you, uh, if he has a hundred sheep, and, and then all of a sudden he says, uh, if you have a hundred sheep, that means, what man among you, if, he, if you were a shepherd... Now, the Pharisees weren't shepherds. As a matter of fact, the Pharisees, they despised shepherds. Shepherds, from their point of view, were unclean. They're dirty for all the reasons we talked about last week. They would never stoop to be a shepherd. But the Pharisees were not stupid. They knew that shepherds were necessary to Israel and the theocracy of Israel. You needed shepherds. It was at the backbone of the entire Mosaic sacrificial system. It's how you relate to God was through what the shepherds cared for and produced, and that was sheep. There's one way you go before a holy God, and that is through sacrifice. Sacrifice of what? Animals. What animal primarily? Lambs and sheep. 
So, for the Pharisees, shepherds were kind of a necessary evil. Couldn't disparage them too much. After all, the greatest king of Israel, David, was a shepherd. The greatest prophet in the history of Israel, he was a shepherd. His name was Moses. Yahweh is called a shepherd, so they couldn't outright jettison the title altogether, shepherd. But they considered them dirty and lowly. And on the lower ranks of society, would have nothing to do with them really on a personal level. But Jesus challenges them and says, what man among you if he has understanding? So they can relate to the story. They know they despise shepherds, but they understand. This is, this is Israelite life 2,000 years ago as everybody lived pretty much in villages and was dependent upon animals and shepherds were everywhere and sheep were everywhere and you needed sheep because you had to sacrifice sheep to worship Yahweh God and bring it down to Jerusalem at the temple and slaughter them. And during feast days, they would slaughter hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of sheep at a time over the course of the Passover week. Thousands. What's the point? Sheep are valuable. Sheep are necessary. Sheep are required by God to maintain a relationship with him. Therefore, you need shepherds. Somebody needs to take care of them. And that's true in all three of these stories. That's a very important point. You've got the sheep, the coins, and the son. You know what all three of those are? They're highly valuable to the Jewish person. Every one of them in that day. Highly valuable. That's why these stories make sense. You lose one, of course. You go after it. It's valuable. What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, and, then, and historically, if you were a shepherd, whether you were uh, the son of your dad who owned all the sheep, or you're a servant of a guy like Abraham taking care of his sheep as a steward, and you're a part of the family, or you were hired as a shepherd and a hireling taking care of somebody's sheep because there were so many, uh, there were all kinds of shepherds, but they were everywhere, and they were absolutely necessary, and it was not uncommon to have anywhere from 20 to 100 sheep in your fold. So th- this, is a, this relates to everybody. They understand that. They see this every day of their life. Following Jesus, they probably walk by all kinds of shepherds and all kinds of sheep. Probably as Jesus is teaching over the hill. Oh, there's a shepherd and there's a sheep. And on that side, there's a shepherd and there's his sheep. So everybody can relate to this, the beauty of Jesus' mastery at teaching. hundred. So one of these shepherds, he has a hundred sheep and he's lost one of them. He knows he's lost one of them because they are valuable. They cost money. And especially if you're shepherding somebody else's sheep, when you go back at the end of the night, you have to account for every single one of them. It's called inventory. It's like when you turn in your cash register box, uh, as a cash register at the store, and they're counting them, or the, the bank. Hey, wait a minute, uh, I'm missing $200 of cash here. Pal, weren't you on duty today? You're accountable, you're responsible. Same thing with the shepherd if it wasn't your sheep. And so it's like, whoa, you can't lose one. You lose one, you got to go get it. You're a shepherd and you realize you lost one, you panic. You're nervous. And that's what's going on here. He's got 100 sheep. He lost one, so immediately does what everybody else would do. This makes sense. He didn't leave the 90. Um, does he not leave the 99 in the open pasture, kind of strategically located? Okay, I think you'll be all right here uh, for 10 minutes. And then he takes off running to try to find that sheep. And so he does. He goes after the one sheep who is lost until he finds it. He's pursuing it. He's pursuing it aggressively. Just the one. He's not saying, oh, well, it's just one. I got 99 others. That one, it's expendable. No. Every one is precious and valuable. That is the point of the story. Every one is precious and valuable. You apply that to human life, that's what God thinks. Every human life is precious and valuable. It's not the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. That is not biblical. That's not God's point of view. Everyone is precious and valuable. It needs to be pursued relentlessly until it is found. You see, this is talking about God as a Savior. God, in first and foremost, He is a Savior. That's, who, that's His nature. He is the only God of the religions of the world throughout history who really is a true Savior because there is no other God in the history of human religion, whether it's Allah or any other gods, who actually did anything to save anybody. They didn't do anything. Allah, the gracious and merciful. No, he's not. He didn't do anything to save anybody. There is no soteriology in Islam. There's no way to save sinners. You can't. He didn't do anything to do it. What did God do? Well, he sent his most precious and valuable commodity. You could say he even sent himself down to human earth. God the Father sent his son that he had an eternal relationship with in perfect unity. sent his son, the most valued personal prize you could possibly imagine. 
The very heart of God was sent to take on human flesh, to die, to be killed and crucified as a substitute, as a sacrifice for sinners. That's why the book of Acts says that Jesus purchased the church with his blood. He purchased the church with his death. He bought the church. He bought sinners by dying for them. That's a true Savior. God punished himself to purchase sinners. God the Father punished Jesus. They are inseparable as the Trinity. No other conception of God in the history of any religion has anything close to that kind of a notion. There's no soteriology. There's no uh, method of salvation to provide justice for the forgiveness of a sinner. God has done that. He is a relentless, pursuing Savior. I love that picture in John 4 where it says that this is true religion and that God the Father is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth and the Father, the Father is seeking those who might worship him. God the Father is seeking sinners. Adam sinned and what happened? He ran to try to hide. What did God do? He pursued him relentlessly until he found him. I believe we will see Adam in heaven. Why? Because God is a savior. He's a relentless pursuing Savior, seeking those whom are lost that he might save them. That's the heart of God. That's what Jesus does. So that's the point in the story. Leave 99. Every soul matters. You pursue it relentlessly until you find it. Verse 5, and when he, was, when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. So he finally finds the lamb to his uh, relief and runs after it. Great joy on his face already bubbling up and emotions flowing over and takes that little lamb. Or maybe it's a big sheep. Shepherds. They had to be strong, rough, rustic. They had to be able to kill a bear or a lion. David. Wolf. Takes that lamb, heaves it up, puts it around his shoulders, tie, either ties or grabs the feet and has to carry that thing. Who knows how long he had to go. Carry it back. That's hard work. That's a shepherd. I, I, every time I read this, I can't get the picture of a, a Keith Green out of my mind and Keith Green was a musician in the 80s, Christian music, great Christian musician. And back in those days when they had records, and on the record cover album was Keith Green. He had the sheep on his shoulders. It's a sweet picture. Uh, so the shepherd, he is rejoicing. He found the sheep. He's probably talking to the sheep. You stupid. Oh, I love you so much. You're so dumb. Why'd you do that? I'm so glad you came back. <laughs> Same way you talk to your dog. Uh, Verse 6, and when he comes home, so the shepherd comes home, probably at night, and he calls together all of his friends and his neighbors. Wow, really? Life must have been really boring back in those days. <laughs> calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me. Oh, what's the news? What happened? Did your wife have a baby? Oh, no, but it's just as exciting. Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep which was lost. Hooray! And everybody celebrates. Big deal. It's a party. So would you lose like 57 out of 100? Did you like lose 90 and then found all 90? No, it was just one. Really? Was it like your most precious one? No, it was actually the runt of the crop. <laughs> really? And you want to rejoice? and Okay, I'll rejoice and have a party with you. One. Every soul is precious. Verse 7, then Jesus turns to the crowd and points his finger at the Pharisees. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven. You think heaven, you think God. As a matter of fact, Matthew, or the Jews in Jesus' day, instead of saying God, they said heaven. The phrase, the kingdom of God, in one gospel, is actually the kingdom of heaven in another gospel because he doesn't want to offend the Jews by saying God's name. So they replace the name of God to honor one of the Ten Commandments by using the word heaven to replace the name of God. That's what's going on here. There is more joy in him because first and foremost, who's in heaven? That is God, first and foremost. That's what it's talking about. That's God's home. That is his residence. That's where he's been for all eternity. He reigns in heaven I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven with God over all those sinners who repent. That is not what it says. There will be more joy in heaven 
with God over one sinner who repents. One! One sinner that repents. This is repeated in verse 10. One sinner who repents. Exact same phrase, verse 10. In the same way I tell you, there is joy in the... little. It's, there's a little change there and adds some detail in verse 10. Uh, in the same way after the second story, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God. A little more specific. It's not the angels are rejoicing, although they are. What are the angels doing? Well, according to Isaiah 6 and Genesis 4 and Genesis 5 in the book of Ezekiel, God is so holy that he is surrounded by heavenly angels who are, they can't even look on God, and they are surrounding him constantly and attending to him and his glory and his uh, requests. So he is always surrounded by holy angels. So that's what that means. It's a reference to God again in the presence. There is joy in the presence of the angels. That's, what it's saying is there is joy with God. God who is in heaven is rejoicing every time one sinner repents and gets saved. That is awesome. Here, here I have the theology of my definition of a revival. You know how people say, oh, we need to pray for a revival. We need to have a revival. Oh, there's a revival over there. Hopefully we can have a revival. Wish we could have revivals like they've had revivals throughout church history sporadically every once in a while here and there, et cetera, et cetera. It's always over there where I'm not invited and can't go. Revival, I'm thinking. I don't, I, that language doesn't even resonate with me. Let's pray for a revival because my first question is, always, well, what do you mean by that? Please define a revival. What is a revival? And the best I could figure out, because nobody wants to define it explicitly, because it just sounds like a good idea, right? It sounds spiritual, that's awesome, God's on the move, doing lots of good stuff, but when you press the issue, please define revival. Bottom line, it comes down to some quantity of people getting saved in a short period of time. Really, is that in the Bible? And it has to be all in the same location. In the same day, it's when, uh, well, there has to be officially 107 people within a 24-hour period spontaneously being saved at the same location. That is a revival. Really. Or it's when somebody gives a gospel in a big stadium with 20,000 people and you see 7,000 people go forward. That's a revival. Okay, 7,000 people went forward and how do you know those 7,000 people got saved? Only God knows that. And why, why is 7,000 the magic number? Or is it 107? Or is it 72? And is it in a 24-hour period? What is a revival? Nobody can answer that question. But apparently a revival, and that's a huge mass of unexpected people getting saved all at the same time is cause for rejoicing and God is finally on the move. This reluctant Savior needs our help and our conjoling and our manipulation in the right environment with the right music and the right location and the right mood. And maybe he'll do something. That is such a wrong view of God and how he works. And especially here, what is God rejoicing in heaven about? Not a revival of a whole bunch of people getting saved at the same time that was unexpected. It's one sinner. He is rejoicing over one sinner that repents. You know what I would say revival is? Okay, I concede. I wave the white flag. Okay, revival's in the Bible. And it's something to be excited about and be praying for. And I think revival is any time one sinner repents and gets saved. And that warrants celebration, excitement, and I guarantee that we know, we've been told, there is great rejoicing in heaven with one saved soul. That is the heart of God. We know this is true because God said it right here. And then this is illustrated all over in the four Gospels. There's an entire chapter in John chapter 4 dedicated to one lady getting saved in a revival. And it was the woman at the well. That's it. There's an entire chapter of chapter 19 of a story of Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Jesus goes to have lunch with him. And he comes out and Jesus says, salvation has come to this house today over one guy. Zacchaeus, let's celebrate. Luke chapter 18, same book. Half the chapter, almost the whole chapter, of a story between two sinners. A, a righteous Pharisee and then a tax collector who's evil and wicked and unworthy and irredeemable. And the fact of the matter is that one guy, that tax collector, he gets saved. And Jesus concludes it in saying, uh, and that man went home justified. The only time Jesus uses the word justified in the Gospels. That man went home justified. And Jesus is celebrating and rejoicing over the salvation of one Lost soul. What is a biblical revival? It's when one sinner gets saved. One sinner gets saved. That's why I love these uh, books. We did these two books, Rescued by Grace, Volume 1 and Volume 2. If you haven't had an opportunity to read these, especially if you've become a member since we gave these out, uh, send me an email. Send David Tong an email uh, and say, hey, I became a member and I didn't get my copy of Rescued by Grace. It was a gift to our members. What those are, they are uh, stories of salvation. 
testimonies, people writing out, members of our church and a couple of other friends of the ministry, writing out their testimony of how they got saved. It's their testimony, and it's just in a chapter, and there's like 15, 16 of them, and many of those are people that still go to this church. Derek and I edited those stories. And to be an editor of those stories, when you're an editor, you've got to read the thing about 10 times. So I read those stories each about 10 times, editing them. I think I cried every time. They never get old. Then I put the book down, go back and read it again six months later. I cry again. They're awesome. Pastor Cliff, what's your favorite part of the ministry of being a pastor and a shepherd? And I know there's heartaches, but what's your favorite thing to do? Is there a favorite thing? Well, yeah, I can tell you there is one of my favorite things. As an elder, it blesses my soul every time. Sometimes it makes me cry. It's when somebody wants to join our church, and then they have to come before the elders, and they have to give their testimony of how they got saved. Actually, the first step is they, they have, we just meet one-on-one, and they tell me their story. How did you get saved? And every time it's like, wow, that is awesome. That is awesome. God is alive. He is a Savior. There was a revival with you of one in your soul. That's awesome. Welcome to the family of God. And then they have to go to the elders and tell their story again. And every single time our souls are blessed beyond human imagination. Because it is a supernatural, divine, gracious work of the God of the universe. This is who He is. He has the heart of a Savior. That is cause for rejoicing. What gives you joy? Well, God saving sinners, loving sinners, liking sinners, accommodating sinners, dying and raising for sinners, that did not give the scribes and Pharisees joy at all. Actually, they hated that. They hated it. If you hate what God loves, you probably don't know God. Uh, that was their case, so... Going back there to that first story, rejoice with me, I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So joy is in all three of these stories. Joy over the salvation and repentance of one sinner. Rejoicing, verse 5. Rejoice, verse 6. Joy in heaven, verse 7. Joy, verse 10, in the presence of the angels. Verse 23. Celebrate, verse 24. Celebrate, that is joy, act it out. Verse 25, music and dancing in the Bible, dancing in the Bible, there it is. <laughs> At God's house, the Father in this parable is God. Music and dancing, that's joy. Verse 32, celebrate and rejoice, that's joy. All over this chapter, it's emphatic. Get the point, God has joy at the salvation of sinners. One at a time, that's how you get into heaven. Through the turnstile of salvation, through Jesus Christ, the narrow way. And you got to repent. Remember last week I asked the trick question? Well, it wasn't a trick question. It was a legit question. Some of you thought it was a trick question. I said, is the love of God unconditional? And I said, be careful how you answer. I would recommend don't answer out loud. Is the love of God unconditional? And the biblical answer is, no, it's not unconditional. The love of God is conditional. And then I said, it's the most narrow conditional love in existence. It's conditioned upon God's terms. And for us, it is the love of God is conditioned upon your relationship with Jesus Christ. Believing His gospel and repenting of your sins. The love of God is conditioned upon repentance. It's in the passage. The one who repents was forgiven and saved. Verse 7. The one who repents of sin was the one who saves in verse 10. The one son who repents and admits his sin is the one saved in the third story. You can't be saved apart from repentance. Repentance is a part of the gospel. It's believe and repent. That's clear. That's biblical. Anything else is heresy and a compromise of the gospel. You must repent. What does that mean? Admit your sin. Admit your sin and confess it. You have to verbally confess it to God. That means admit your wrongdoing. It's a violation of God's requirements. You are guilty. Own it. Admit it. Ask for God's grace. Ask for his mercy. Plead with him. You can't be saved apart from the repentance of sin. God, I need a Savior. I can't save myself. I am wicked. I deserve your wrath. I deserve your justice. Please save me. You can't be saved apart from repentance. Clearly biblical. And just in our day, the vernacular is, if you believe that, then you're a lordship salvationist. Whether you realize it or not, there's a big theological evangelical controversy over that. Some Christians are trying to say, I don't need to repent to be saved. When you share the gospel, don't ask the sinner to repent. No, you need to. 
That's what Jesus did. That's basic to Christianity. Verse 8, we'll close with this, because every element we just saw is also just reiterated with a couple of changes in the second story. Or, continuing on, let me uh, highlight it again from a different point of view with the same uh, basic argument. Or what woman among you, and Jesus is now, he, he's a savior for everybody, right? Men, women, doesn't matter your social status, whatever. Pharisees, they hated women. Like sheep, they were a necessary evil. Or what woman out there, if she has ten silver coins, which were valuable, they were rare. People didn't necessarily have coins among the normal people. So they're very valuable. If she has ten coins and she loses one, of course she's going to panic. She doesn't, if, and does not light a lamp and sweep the whole house, tear the house apart, their little hut or whatever she lived in, and, care, and search carefully until she finds it. She's a relentless savior for that which is lost. This is the heart of God. And then everybody's relating. Yeah, of course a, a woman would do that. This makes sense. So both times the Pharisees have agreed with Jesus' little story. Yeah, of course a sheep did that and should do that. Yes, we agree with you that the lady did that and should do that. Yes, we agree. We're, we're two for two with you, Jesus. Well, he, he pulls that over into the third story, and they don't agree with him. Because when he says, uh, who among you if he has two sons and one becomes a rebel and leaves, and the father doesn't pursue him through prayer in the providence of God, who, who wouldn't do that? And they're like, well, we wouldn't. If my son was a rebel and did that and defied my authority, he's cut off from the family. He has no forgiveness. He is irredeemable. He's to be executed and stoned to death, preferably in light of the Mosaic Code. That was their attitude. No, you don't go and pursue him relentlessly and pray for his return. You don't love him. You cut him out of the family. We're going to see that in the third story. It takes a turn, a terrible turn. But here, the lost coin, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, when she's found it, uh, she calls her lady friends. Feminine in the Greek text. You can put lady friends in there. It's feminine. Her girlfriends. Well, that's what girls do, right? I'm not talking to the guys. You're not going to talk to your husband. He won't even listen. He doesn't even care. I lost a coin. My girlfriend cares about that. So that's who she's calling. She calls her lady friends and her lady neighbors. Saying, rejoice with me. Let's have a party. For I have found the coin which I had lost. Another party over just what seems to be a very small, insignificant thing. Boy, life must have been boring back then. But anyway... Cause for rejoicing. Now the point is that God rejoices over what seems to be menial, not a big deal. How many people got saved yesterday around the world that you didn't hear about and I didn't hear about? And there was no fanfare, wasn't publicized, wasn't on Fox News. Somebody got saved yesterday and there was a party going on in heaven. Joy like you've never seen. Just because we don't see and experience it doesn't mean it's not happening. We miss out on the true heart of God. He is celebrating over every time one sinner gets saved. Verse 10, And in the same way I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Hopefully these uh, two stories just warming up and, and helping us look forward to the, really the crescendo and the whole point of these stories taken together. We're not done. Uh, it's going to be powerful. And there's going to be, I think, a lot of practical application for every person listening, whether you're saved or not, especially if you are a parent, regardless of how old your children are. And we want to delve into that. In the meantime, keep praying for those who are lost in light of Romans 9 and 10. Pray for those who are lost. Keep sharing the gospel. Plant the seeds. Water the seeds as you are able. Thank you, team, that went out yesterday on Evangelism Saturday. They had a great crew of about 30 people knocking on doors. Pray for those seeds that were watered and planted yesterday, and there's going to be follow-up on that as well. And whenever we hear that anytime one person gets saved, we want to rejoice because we know God is doing that in heaven. So with that, uh, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Uh, Father, we thank you for uh, this morning uh, the opportunity to gather as the body of Christ to celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus to study the word together thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit 
who allows us to understand it. Now we pray that you would help us apply this to our life. God, with your spirit, help it resonate over and over again in our mind that we wouldn't forget about it today or by Monday. That we would walk away with a profound, indelible impression of your attributes, one of which is joy, and that your greatest joy is over the salvation of even just one sinner. And Lord, in light of that, that you would bring our desires and what gives us fulfillment and what is our joy in conformity with yours, that we would mourn for the lost, pray for the lost, give the gospel to the lost, and rejoice when we see salvation, all by your grace. We thank you for this model and this truth. We commit it to you in Christ's name. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.